Tim Keller in in one of his books on church planting. It's actually it's a it's a book, but it's not really a published book. It's a church planting guide kind of thing. He mentions this idea of tiny customs. And what a tiny custom is, is a thing that you do that you don't realize that you do that other people take notice of. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad, sometimes they get in the way of the gospel. But the idea is that there are these tiny customs. And I think being brave to do something like we're, we're going to have an intermission. We're going we're gonna to take a risk and do something a little different than churches normally do helps people overcome their impressions of tiny customs. Another might have been being brave enough to meet in a brewery for a while. So there are some, there are some lessons that came out of what, what our experience at Sojourn has been that we will carry with us for the rest of our lives. When we first came to Sojourn, I, I said to David, I know we're called to church planting, but I don't know in what capacity or how. I, at the time, I thought that was going to be that we were on a church planting team that we were supporting, probably in a worship capacity, uh, musicians. I just knew that we were called in that direction to something, and I asked for permission. May we incubate here? May we, may we rest here until such time as God calls us to whatever that future vision is? And, and David welcomed us with open arms. You welcomed us with open arms. And we knew that that was going to be, in a sense, temporary. There was going to be a time that we were called out. So this should be bittersweet for everybody. It should be bittersweet for us. But bittersweet like sending a kid to college. I, I've got a senior this year. Yes, I'm old. Um, we've got a senior that we went on college road trips, and we had that experience of saying, we're going to say goodbye to you, but it's not a permanent goodbye. It's a go do what God's called you to do, but then come home for Thanksgiving regularly. Um, your Thanksgiving this year is going to be at our house. <laughs> you can't go have Thanksgiving with your friends this year. So the idea that it's bittersweet is different than a funeral, or at least the way that we think of a funeral in an earthly context. I also want to remind you, though, that a funeral can be bittersweet, too, because you're going to see them again if their life is kept with Christ. So bittersweet. But healthy things grow. Healthy things um, produce fruit, and fruit comes with a dying, in a sense. The fruit falls from the tree, and, and in a sense it dies so that new life can come. And so we're, we're being willing to go, and you're being willing to send us. We'll create space for more fruit. And I want you to see that, and I want you to pray earnestly that sojourn continues to grow and bear new fruit because healthy branches grow. With that, there are some things that are central that I think are part of church planting, part of the call. If you've hung around me long enough, you know that I think every believer has a responsibility to church planting. And I get that from a passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, one plants and another waters, but it's God who makes grow. And, and so the growth, the fruit, comes from the Holy Spirit, but the work of planting is for all of us. You take it with you to your job. It's part of your vocation. It's part of your friendships. It's part of everything that you do if you have a life submitted to Christ. And there are things that should apply to that church planting mindset, whether you're in Huntsville or whether you're in Zimbabwe. 
uh, whether you're in Cambodia or Connecticut, the idea being that certain aspects of what it means to be the church and to be about church planting are universal. I'll share a couple of those with you. One is gospel centrality. If the gospel is not the center of what you do and why you do it, then you are off-center because it is the center of everything. In other words, the good news of God is the center of what drives you in every other aspect of your life. But this is the work of God that we are proclaiming. So the second thing, kind of the, the meat around that core seed, is a lifestyle of posture of worship. Worship is not music. Music is a form of worship. Worship is not study. Study is a form of worship. Worship is not prayer. Prayer is a form of worship. And so you can worship in everything that you do, and it should always have a creative expression. And that creative expression should come in your art and in your design, if you're a computer engineer, um, there's, there's something about that creativity. If you're in finances, you can be creative. No, wait a minute. Don't be creative financing. That's not what I mean. But what I do mean is that the way that you figure how has God called me to steward my resources is creativity. That is a form of worship. Or it can be if your life is rooted in that centrality of the gospel. Gospel centrality, a lifestyle of worship, and then a, a discipleship, which is a submitting to learning. Those are things that should be universal. And discipleship is both class and lab. It's both learning and doing. If you watch what Jesus did, he grabbed the disciples alongside of him. He went and taught them, but then he sent them, and then they came back and talked about it. And David's been... Um, very good at reminding us all that there is class and lab associated with discipleship. Why is it then that if those things are universal, we're called to plant churches? Well, first, there is one church. It's Christ's church. We are all part of it. But there is something about this mission that God's called us to that is to be done in certain contexts. And what I mean by context is where you walk out your life, as you go, what you are called to do, who you are called to be amongst. Th those are contextual things. And, and God will call people out and send them to new contexts because people there do not have a clear understanding or someone to represent the gospel in that context. And that's what we're being called to do. That's what makes a church in five points different than a church a few miles away. That's what makes a church in northern India different than one in southern India or southern Africa or Europe because of the context and the culture to which you proclaim this message. So I'm going to spend a minute explaining this overall message of God, the mission of God, something universal, something for all people everywhere, and then we'll drill down a little bit more. For those of you that were here last time I spoke, I, I mentioned a creed in 1 Corinthians 15. How many of you have been practicing that? Okay, I won't quiz you. Um, the idea that that creed was found out of Scripture, and it says, For Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried and He rose on the third day according to the Scriptures. There was something I mentioned in that presentation of the Gospel that said 
the scriptures to the people that were proclaiming that creed were the Old Testament scriptures. There's something I, I want you to recognize that the universal mission of God has always been the universal mission of God. It didn't become the mission of God after the cross. It was his plan A from before the foundation of the world, from before Adam and Eve fell. This mission of God was absolutely clear in his mind, and it was being revealed to us. And it has been a mystery, and there are parts of it about what comes next that are still a mystery. And so this mystery is something that we're called to explore together. So part of exploring that has been in my life, there was a foundational verse in Acts 17.11. I encourage you to not trust everything I say just blanketly. The Bereans did not just trust what Paul said. They searched the scriptures, primarily the Old Testament. They searched the scriptures to see if these things were true. And that verse is Acts 17.11. And so that charter verse should encourage you to say, if I say something that you go, I, I'm not sure I agree with that, then you pick up one of these and you ask God to reveal it to you directly and search the scriptures to see if these things are true. Christ said in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. So we're going to go back to those scriptures that Christ was talking about. We're going to go look at a passage that's roughly in the middle of the Bible. It's in Psalm 49. Now, if you don't have a Bible, let this be the last day that you don't have a Bible. There are Bibles in the back, uh, just like this one. Let it be your first act of obedience to be willing to take the risk to be disruptive a little bit and either ask somebody to go get you one or get up out of your seat and go get your own. If you're grabbing one of these, it's on page 303. No? Everybody's good? Everybody's got one? Okay, we'll be on the screen for those of you that were too shy to get up. All right, so, Psalm 49. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, and the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own name, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Selah. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death must be their shepherd. 
and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will not go, or his, I'm sorry, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never see again the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Father God, I ask that you would reveal your word to us, that you would show us the mystery that's in this riddle, that you would help us to understand and incline our ears to hear. Let my voice fall away and whatever is of you remain in Jesus' name. Amen. Something interesting about the structure of a Hebrew poem is that the point of it is not usually at the ending. The point is usually wrapped up in the middle somewhere. So I want to briefly walk through what this poem is about. And I want to, I want to try and wrap you back to what the center part of the mystery is that, that's in this riddle. And it's called a riddle by, um, by the author itself. And first of all, in the beginning, in the first couple of verses, it says that this is to all nations. And um, in verse 1, it says, Give ear all inhabitants of the world. And, and the all inhabitants of the world is pretty unique. Now, there's lots and lots of scripture that tell the, the people of God that their mission is the world. But there are not too many places in scripture where it says, Listen up, everybody. And the, the word that says the world there is only used about five times in scripture. And every time it means everybody alive on the earth at that point in time. This psalm was written by the author for the entire world for everyone to hear. Does that distinction make sense? It's not just written to us about the world. It's written to the entire world. That's pretty, pretty unique. And in verse 4, the author says that this is a riddle. The, the author specifically says that this is going to be a riddle. And that riddle is sometimes translated dark saying or hidden saying. There's something hidden in the middle of this psalm. It's also used in Proverbs 1.6 where the author says that there are riddles of the wise. Okay. So the, the first part of this is a call to all nations to listen to a riddle and to wrestle with it. To figure out why there is such a mystery about what God is about. Why is there a mystery and what is this mystery? And he's going to point out that there is something that all of us should be wrestling with. So part two, starting in verse five, is what is the problem? We skip down a couple of verses, and in verse seven and verse eight, starting in verse seven, <clears throat> no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Verse eight. For the ransom of their life is costly, and none can suffice. I, I didn't think about it until this morning when we were talking through this. But when I was in Mozambique uh, about five years ago, we were driving back to the South African border. 
And Mozambique was the, at one point the poorest country in the world. And we have nice new rental cars with South African plates, obviously foreigners, a bunch of white people in the car. And someone throws a dead baby out in front of us as we're driving to the border. We have nurses on our little convoy, and they immediately stop the car, jump out, and as they run to try and see if this baby is alive, the Mozambican guide said, don't touch the child. And of course, that's going to strike at the heart of the lady that was the chief nurse on our trip. And she said, why not? And he said, that baby's been dead for several days. And they threw that child out because life here is cheap. And if you touch them, they'll take you to jail and extort you for money. The problem is that we know that that's not true. We know that life is costly, that you value, that you have value, that you have meaning, that you have purpose to God, but we look at our lives and say, it just doesn't seem to make sense. There's something about that that's just not quite in alignment. We know that the cost of life is high, so why do we wrestle with treating it so cheaply? Do you know that you're valuable? Do you really understand how valuable your life is to God? In verse 9, the author points us back to the idea that death is not the end. The word that's used for the pit here is the same word for Sheol, or, or Sheol means pit. That word, when it got translated from Hebrew into Greek, got translated into Hades which was the abode of the dead. Now, I, w- I want to point out a slight difference in understanding. This is not the grave. And the author is going to make that very clear as he goes through the rest of it because he's going to say, your form is destroyed, but you live on in this pit. The, the, the grave is some place where your body dwells. Conceptually, that's roughly the same, but we're in the middle of a riddle, so words are very important in the middle of a riddle. He's saying there's going to be a place where you go, where your spirit goes that is not your body. If you're burned in a house fire and your body is disintegrated, you still exist somewhere, and that place is this pit. So death is not the end. Okay, so now he's created the problem. He's told you he's going to share a riddle with you. Now there's going to be the snare. Starting in the next part, the, the part three, he's building the climax. He says, okay, we all recognize there's a problem. Now here's what everybody tries to do about it on their own. In verse 11, he says, there is an error in legacy. What do I mean by legacy? I'm going to build a big building, and I'm going to put my name on the front of it. It's going to be Stow Tower. There is actually a place called Stow, Alabama. Google Maps had it several years ago where you would find it, but now Google Maps has kind of dropped it off because it's a nothing little spot in the road. Um, But my great-great-grandfather? Okay, great-great-great-grandfather. Okay, yeah. He was a great man. Um, he was the postmaster and sheriff of this little town. And it was established in his name as Stow, Alabama, before Birmingham was named Birmingham. That's pretty cool. And none of you know where this place is at. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. We have a couple of... All right, raise your hands again. All right, we have a couple of people from Fayette, Alabama. And Stow, Alabama is a few miles from Fayette, so they know where it's at. Okay. Though they called lands by their own name, they are forgotten. They're still in Alexandria. There's an Alexandria, Virginia, and you remember Alexander the Great, but where is he? He's in the same pit with everybody else. 
So verse 12 and 13 point out the idea that there is a certainty of death, like beasts, they perish. And in verse 13 it goes on and it says, Though other people behind them approve of what they've done, hey, that was a good man. You know what? It doesn't matter. The snare that you're going to be able to save your own life reflects back to the problem. You can't afford your own life. You don't just get to live a good life and then all of a sudden accomplish something after the end of your heartbeat. This is a snare. This is a trap. And the psalmist is trying to point out to you that you're not going to achieve what you could not pay for. You can't earn enough credibility amongst other men to pay for what your life really costs. But the psalmist hints at the solution. He doesn't give the solution. He hints at it. In verse 14, And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Okay, if death is their shepherd, they're in the pit... Okay, what's the morning? Anybody? Give me a good definition of the morning. A.M., sunrise, breakfast, something, morning. Come on, give me some feedback. I'm feeling... Oh, hot coffee. I like that. Okay, so it's, it's the, a time of waking up, right? It's the awakening. What's his point right there? In, okay, if death is going to be your shepherd and the upright shall rule over them, when? In the morning. There is going to be a resurrection. And for anyone that ever tells you that the resurrection is not proclaimed in the Old Testament, they either A, haven't read it, or B, they glossed over it so lightly that they didn't understand that that clearly says that death will be your shepherd and there will be a morning. Your form, your dwelling place, these digits, these eyes, these lips, this is going to be consumed, but I am more than this. In verse 15, roughly the center of this psalm, the psalmist says something that should have everybody else stop in their tracks and really wonder what it is that he's talking about and where this confidence comes from. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. This is not a universal statement because he said the wicked will perish like the beast. But he says of himself, God will ransom my soul from the power of the pit, the, the place of the dead. And he will receive me. This word, Selah. Uh, some thought it was a musical term, and it, in a sense it is, but it's more correctly defined by people, even though they don't know what the word actually means. It is a pause for deep reflection. So do that. Favorite ransom movie? Anybody? Anybody got a ransom? When I say ransom, you think movie, you think what? Huh? Taken? taken? <laughs> My daughter says taken. Okay. Um, Man on Fire? Anybody see Man on Fire? 
Okay, so there's an exchange. Uh, the thing I like about Man on Fire as a as a, a gospel analogy is that he saves, but he also exchanges his own life in the process. Um, so ransom is costly; it costs something. The the gospel message is hidden here because it says God will ransom my soul from. He doesn't say he'll he'll pull out. It doesn't say that he will. He will just save me. It says he will ransom me. He will pay a price for me. And I will be received out of the pit. You guys see the gospel starting to form in the middle of this scripture, in the middle of the Old Testament? But then he stops. Why? Because the mystery hasn't been revealed completely to him. He's... Hundreds of years before Christ is born. He knows that it's going to happen, but he doesn't reveal the entire riddle. There's a mystery wrapped up into it. As Christ said, we search the scriptures looking for eternal life, and they're proclaiming about him. So the refrain in, uh, in the last part, uh, just look at verse 16, for example. The refrain is that you should have no fear in death. So the psalmist says something that's kind of odd. He wraps it up into this other mysterious language, you're hanging on the edge of the cliff going, tell me the secret. How do I earn this ransom? And instead, he says, don't be afraid. That's it. That's all he says. He doesn't tell you how. He doesn't tell you this is the way that you earn uh, the same ransom that God will do for you. He just says, don't be afraid of it. Well, that's kind of disconcerting if you ask me because he says, the assurance is offered to you in reading this psalm, but not the, not the details. And so you're going to wrestle with it going... Okay, I can't trust in my own self to pay my own price. I can't trust in the riches or the legacy or the good works that I've done. I'm just to not be afraid of death. And that's it. That's how it ends. This reflects the message of Scripture. There, there is a process that the psalmist walked through here that, that is a divine mystery that uh, is not just contained in this one little psalm. You should see it everywhere. In fact, if you look at the mystery, um, it, it was hidden for a reason because a price had to be paid, and those who were going to execute the payment, and, and that, that is a double entendre. They, okay? they were going to execute the payment in, in the financial sense. They were going to actually be the executors of it, but they were also going to execute the Messiah who was the payment. So it, it means both things. If you look at Colossians 1, starting in verse 26, it says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, the unraveling of the riddle comes in the New Testament. You have to see that this is throughout Scripture, there is the same riddle in a macro sense over and over again. In fact, if you look at Genesis 11, you see that men tried to create a name for themselves and you get the Tower of Babel. You, you see it from all over Scripture where the legacy myth ends up pointing to what men's desire is, that there's something more beyond the grave. But we don't even have the assurance of the time on earth to build a legacy. Uh, in, in Luke 12... Right before Jesus 
uh, proclaims about this guy who tore down his barns and built bigger barns and said, you fool, your life will be claimed of you this evening. You know that parable? Right before that, he says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So if we're going to tout that you're going to be a good person and we're going to put the Ten Commandments up on a pedestal, and I don't mean to not say they're good. I just mean that sometimes we elevate the Ten Commandments above the God who authored them. And you say, if you just live a good life, God will be happy with you, then you are a fool. Why do I say that? Because how many of you can save your heart from covetousness? Thou shalt not covet. Good luck. There is an appointment that we all have with death. The idea of the certainty of death is something that we wrestle with, that all mankind is wrestling with. Why bother with medicine at all? Why bother with trying to cure cancer? Honestly, I mean, why? Because they're going to die anyway. I don't mean to sound morbid. Not at all. That's not my point. We should try and value and preserve life. But there is a near 100% mortality rate. 99.999, however you go. There's only one that I know of that came back. So the appointment that we all have with death should humble us. In Hebrews 9.27 it says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now here's the rub. Because we say, death... Yeah, okay, everybody's going to die. But judgment? I don't agree with that. So since I, obviously the king of my own universe, don't agree that God has any right to judge me, and now I'm paraphrasing here, I obviously do, but at one time in my life I did not. When I was an atheist, I didn't think that there was any way that there could be an absolute, perfect, holy, divine judge that would execute judgment on me after the end of my life and put my life up on a screen. I'll challenge you with something, by the way. The idea that your life gets put up on a screen before you for everybody was a verse spoken to believers, not unbelievers. You go find that on your own and wrestle with it a little bit. It's not just that you're going to be put before judgment before God and He's going to say, fail, 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 you didn't measure up. It says that your life was born in rebellion and sin. And that judgment, that singular judgment, deserves eternal separation from God. There is an appointment with death, and there is an assurance of judgment, and it has nothing to do with how good or how bad you were on earth. You were born a rebel. The king came to claim what is his own, and you have a choice. You can hold your rebellion or you can claim allegiance to the king. It's that simple. In Hebrews 9.28, just on the other end of that verse that proclaims judgment, it says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, parentheses, because he dealt with sin on the cross. Your sin has been paid for but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We, we toss around this idea that we're saved. How many, how many of you have heard the term saved, past tense, saved? Okay, 
There's even a movie about some high school kids, and it's named Saved. This says you are being saved. Both are true, in a sense, but we all know that as Christians, unless we're caught up in the rapture, and that's a different sermon, you are going to die and be saved. So you are being saved. Okay? So that's a little bit of semantics, but it raises the question for a lot of people, okay, you're a Christian, and this other person's a not Christian, and they say okay, you're being saved, you're you're saved, what does that mean? Why doesn't God just take you home now? (laughs) There's a a movie called Religulous, and uh, in the movie, the antagonist, who's the atheist, who's trying to point out the ridiculous nature of a religion, walks up to this Christian shop owner and says, okay, you believe you're going to spend life with God, and you're safe after death, just kill yourself. And the the guy's kind of dumbfounded, he's like, Okay, first of all, you get a very intellectually sophisticated atheist who's specifically trying to trap people and only taking the sound bites. And you're the humble shop owner that's just trying to live a good Christian life. And this guy walks into your shop and he challenges you with that. And you're going to be like, well, why? So it's not just a non-Christian issue to wrestle with. It's a Christian issue to wrestle with. Why are you still here? Well, the answer to why you're still here is because you were called to a mission that God wants to proclaim that good news to people who don't understand it and haven't heard it yet. That's why you're still here. That's why I'm still here. That's why we're going out to do church planting. Because there are people who have not heard this message that was written to the entire world. It was an exchange. A wage paid. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So while you're here, evangelism is proclaiming that there is a mystery, that your life is costly and you can't pay the price. And that is a message that has been there from the foundation of the world. They knew it hundreds of years before Christ proclaimed himself as the payment. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So evangelism, mission, is helping others understand that this universal mission of God applies to me and the non-believing friend from work that I invite to lunch to walk through and understand how to tell him the riddle and help him to understand that there is a solution to this riddle. It's not just a cliffhanger anymore. The the psalmist in the beginning in, in Psalm 49 verse 3 says that his mouth is going to speak wisdom. Evangelism is not just good works. It is not just doing good things. We, we started an organization called Love Huntsville. And the Love Huntsville organization is a non-Christian, it is a, in a sense, a secular organization that is just out there telling stories of people who've done good things. There are, all over the artist community, banners of love. Love! You can, uh, you can look back in the archives if you're not old enough. To, to see the 70s and um, see all of the 60s and 70s love posters that were everywhere. Love. 
right? The Beatles saying, all you need is love. Okay, with your mouth, proclaim the gospel. Don't just give an earthly definition of love because you're going to love them straight into the pit. Proclaim the gospel with your mouth while you are still alive that Christ is the payment for their sin, that His love defines our love. And your love will then be different and it will then be attractive to those people who wrestle with this mystery. Understand that there is a reward that associates with this, and I'm not going to get too much into the idea of spiritual rewards and, you know, the, the last one in the, in, the, uh, in the mission field is um, going to earn the same wage as the first one. But there is something you can take with you. You don't get to take your toys with you. He who has the most toys does not win. You don't get to take your wealth or your reputation. You don't get to take any of that stuff with you. You don't get to take your good looks, which is, in my case, a good thing. Um, you don't get to take those things with you. So what do you take with you? First Thessalonians 2.19 For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? So what do you take with you? other people you get to take that person with you when the light bulb goes off and they recognize Christ died for me and that is more valuable than anything you will earn on earth because it is eternal put your reward in heaven and work hard for it. And so we're asking for a blessing. I'm asking for a blessing to be sent out. There is a part of church planting that is just echoed in the call to all believers to be fruitful and multiply. But we recognize that there's also a calling on some people to go start new works. And that has nothing to do with just the, the rank order or anything like that. It just has to do with starting the context and building the foundation for others to come join new works. There's a statistic that basically says, um, I'll paraphrase it because I haven't memorized the statistic, but it, when a church is in its first five to ten years, that that is the most fruitful period for winning new souls to Christ. Part of what drives that is this idea of church planting. Sojourn is doing the healthy thing by planting a new church out of their congregation because then it kind of starts the clock over, you know? It, it really does. The idea that when a church is 10 to 15 years old, then it's like 100 to 1 new conversions. Why? Because the church kind of goes into the caretaking role. So us planting is not only healthy for those new people that wouldn't come to Sojourn, it's also healthy for Sojourn to start the process of leader development and to start the process of inviting new souls to energize all of you who will stay here back to the mission of God, back to the idea that evangelism is your responsibility and you can take people with you. Sojourn is not the hope of the world. Christ is the hope of the world.
the Berean fellowship of churches who we go to plant with and who we've had uh, a, a growing relationship with over the last year and a half that we've been in this church plant development and internship process, they're not the hope of the world. The hope of the world is Christ. So I'm going to echo a scripture as I close from Paul who in Colossians, in his letter to them, was asking for their blessing to be about the missionary work of planting new churches. In Colossians chapter 1, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, hope of glory. Father God, we are humbled at your presence here with us, and we ask that as you are calling us to your mission, that you would clarify it in us so that we might be clear about what we're doing, and through us so that others might heed the call and accept the payment on their behalf for their lives to be ransomed from the pit. We ask that you would empower us and encourage us and give us wisdom beyond our own understanding and a peace that carries us forward that as we go to do new things that, that we get to relish in the bittersweet, that we get to share in the suffering with joy. will be done in my life, in our lives, as in heaven your will is done.